see you. And um, thanks for taking the time to join us on Changemakers. And one thing I wanted to start with was that I was reading um, an FT profile where it ended with your legacy and you spoke about, well, actually, you wanted to be remembered for what you'd done at home, which is why I'm so glad to be here with you. And the line was, well, it'll be the trees that I planted. And when I read it, I thought, do people actually get that and understand it? And I wanted to sort of pick up the story there in terms of what nature means to you, what this place, because here we are at Thenford House at your home, in terms of why that really matters, what really get, stirs the heart. Well, you know, if you think about the last century, how many politicians does anyone remember? Mm. The odd prime minister, not even all prime ministers. So uh, I have no illusions that politics is very much here today, gone tomorrow. Right. But, um, uh, but uh, uh, I've been a gardener since I was so high, and mm. uh, it's been an incredible privilege to find in a house and an estate of this sort where there really hadn't been serious gardening, but a lot of, well, frankly, neglect over many, many decades. Uh, the, where trees fell, they fell. Mm. Where invasion took place from birch or blackberries or whatever it was, <laughs> that's what happened, you know. So basically, we've now cleared and replanted about 70 acres yeah. and, and we have an incredible collection of trees and shrubs. But I suppose that's, that's, that's what you've done. What's it done to you? Well, I think what it's done for me above all else is to provide a sort of therapeutic... Mm. Uh, I mean, I remember quite visit, vividly, the, uh, I'd come back on a weekend, uh, the red boxes would come with me, I would then do them on a Saturday morning and then I'd walk out and everything was left behind. Mm. It was uh, uh, just another world, uh, peaceful, quiet, um, exciting, changing, unpredictable, but uh, very much uh, away from it. I've often heard it said about people with dogs is that when they, when they hold very powerful positions, Oprah Winfrey has said this, is that dogs just bring something out that they almost like throw their authority away and are with that and the dogs are almost sort of like this sort of other personality this other part of their lives do you, do you find do you find that with your dogs I mean, well uh, they, the word that struck me in what you said was the word authority yeah i have no authority over these dogs <laughs> i can see that and, and, and my wife and my wife is completely besotted by this one here and he, he this this uh, fergus is uh, he's in charge? He's much older than yeah, the others. Yeah, he, he's and uh, and, and uh, if my wife is here, he protects her mm. from the others. Yeah, uh, quite aggressively, it has to be said. I think I've met you once every ten years since the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, as I was driving over to see you this morning, I was reflecting on that in terms of, I suppose, my own journey. I think I met you in mid 80s, um, and it got me thinking, in terms of. Here we are in 2023. Your story began um, sometime, a long time before that, in terms of your political ambition, your political career. If your younger self could take the third seat, that sort of that beginnings of your political career, where you were going, in terms of that legacy point that you made, I mean, it strikes me that you might have things to say to that, that, that younger version of yourself about 
the the life, the hurry, the career, the ambition. What's the advice well, you give to yourself? Do you think? Well, I I'm always being asked um, about what I advise young people to do, mm. and it's coupled with the uh, statement I'm I'm thinking of going into politics. So my reply to someone who says that is don't. Because if you're only thinking about it, you're not really up for it, for the stress, the strain, mm. the relentless pressure, and the, and the inevitable criticisms. You are at the center of controversial decisions, and every time you take a decision, you may bask in the glory of your supporters, but I tell you, there are a lot of people out yeah. there who hate you. And the, the other thing I always say, do something that makes you look forward to a Monday morning. The, That's the good one, advice. Well, yeah. the one thing that I've always found, I always yeah. looked forward to Monday morning yeah. because I so enjoyed the things that I've been doing. Yeah. In terms of how ambition has changed for you, what it means to you over those decades, I, mean, I think when everybody thinks about you, they, they see, you know, I mean, I think you've made the point about will you be remembered. I think you'll be remembered possibly a lot more than, than you think you will. But, I mean, you are, you stand out as a, great statesman in British politics, but one I think that has been, people see as driven, that somebody who was ambitious, um, going for the top, involved in the big issues of the day. In terms of how ambition has worked for you and whether you think of it as friend or foe now you look back, what's the sort of advice you give apart from the the sort of the the, the glove stealing of your dog, he's very ambitious. What does ambition mean to you? Well, much less than it is attributed to mean to me. Um, I think as a young person, I was quite nervous. Um, And I'm not a great social communicator. I mean, one of the criticisms of me in politics is that I didn't smooch the tea rooms. I I just went back to my department, which was true. Uh, And um, I enjoyed the departmental work. I I took the view that if I did it well, it would lead to other things. Um, And I, I found sitting in the tea rooms really not the sort of thing I was all about. Um, uh, Was that that more general? Because everybody would say, an amazing stage performer. Anybody that's seen you speak in front of a big crowd, you you just knew how to work them. It's interesting. A lot of of people that are good at that sometimes find the one-on-one a more difficult thing to do. Yes. um, I I think that the the public speaking did develop. Mm. Um, I think I have got more professional, if I may say, as time has gone on, as I learnt more how to do it and how audiences react. Um, but, but that was quite lo- late in my career. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was middle-aged before that became a, a serious part, although I had been part of the school debating society, so it was there at the very beginning. In my first day at Oxford, I joined the union. Um, but uh, I mean, it, one of the things that I, I, I was always said that from 1986, when I left the Thatcher government, I was sort of conspiring yeah, to bring her down. That really wasn't true. No. What I was doing was surviving. Right. I, I was determined that I wouldn't have my career destroyed by what I regarded as Margaret's unacceptable behaviour. Um, but but it wasn't in any way geared to trying to get rid of her. Inevitably, she would have gone 
within a perfectly mm. acceptable time scale for me to come back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so I, I, what I did do was keep my uh, presence uh, basically with two themes. One was Europe and the other was um, industrial strategy mm. or environmental policy. I read somewhere that you always felt you were never going to win anyway on the leadership campaign. Did, 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 no, I never thought I would win, that mm. is true. Uh, but I thought I would come back yeah. and that's what I wanted to do. Um, I think I probably was a too divisive a character yeah. because the party was changing and I was, I think I was changing too. I think Liverpool, without any doubt, Had changed, changed you. did change me. What, why, why was that? Well, because I realised that the sort of, the oversimplification of party politics is, yeah. is frankly not part of the real world. Mm. The real world is much more complex mm. and the interrelationships between particularly the public and the private sector uh, is so important in the management of a complex society. Um, but I also came face to face with poverty of a sort that I had never experienced. Although, of course, I was brought up in South Wales, so you can't be brought up in South Wales, however prosperous I, what my family was, without being aware that there's a very different world. Um, but but that's not the same as walking the streets and, of Liverpool and a very human world. I mean, did you? I mean, in thinking about how Liverpool changed you, presumably it was the people that you met, was it? it was I, I, the people were marvellous. Mm. The best best memories were the children. Yeah. Um, wherever I went, there'd be two, four, eight, fifteen, twenty. I was a sort of Pied Piper, <laughs> and they all wanted me Come to out, sign. They all wanted me to sign my signature on a piece of paper, which, of course, I was very flattered to do. It was only later I discovered they were flogging them off for 50p a time. <laughs> well, I mean, if you, I'm, I'm presuming as the founder of Haymarket, you would have approved of that entrepreneurial spirit. I, I, of course. I, mean, my, I wish I'd thought of it myself. <laughs> when, when you look back on your career at Westminster, um, how much did you actually enjoy it? How much joy did it give to you, do you think? Well, joy is, I mean, I'm not quite sure is, is the right word. Uh, how much um, satisfaction, mm. um, how much, well, I suppose one does say do enjoy, but I think of enjoy in a sort of happy sort of sense. And, um, uh, but, but the experience of my life in politics was hugely satisfying right. and enriching. I mean, a lot of people will define their time through the lens of politics, it, it strikes me that's not for you in terms of how you would define your essential characteristics. I think the essential characteristics are more evident in Haymarket. Mm. Than it, but they, the, what is so interesting is that the jobs I had in government embraced my other two careers. Uh, I was in the Department of Industry, Department of mm. Defence, Department of Environment, all of them had massive wealth-creating responsibilities and activities. And so uh, the, the entrepreneurial side of me, the managerial side of me, found expression in politics. Yes. And indeed now, with this particular place, with the, the numbers of people who come and the open days and just the scale of the cataloging and labelling, mm. uh, again, there's a managerial role. But also in modern time, in more more recent times, excuse me, a lot of business people have struggled with the political world. But I guess in your um, 
in, in the sort of 80s and 90s cabinets, there were a lot of self-made entrepreneurs that were contemporaries and um, people that actually somehow managed to get it right. Um, I, I interviewed um, the late David Young and he, he said that actually politics was a bit of a sickness for him, was that he somehow it, he, he was drawn into it. He loved being an entrepreneur. He loved the enterprise side of life, but something sort of drew him back into it. Um, and he could never really explain why. I mean, in terms of the sort of like what kept you going, was was it the ability to affect change or was it or was it something else that... I, I, I think I would mirror a lot of what you've just quoted because I know exactly when I joined the Conservative Party in October 1951 and I set off to walk through one of the main streets in Swansea to have coffee with friends. And then the other side of the road, I saw this hoarding, Henry Kirby, prospective candidate, Swansea West. Uh, I crossed the road and I said, can I help? And 10 days later, I went up to Oxford and I joined the city of uh, Oxford Conservative Association, Oxford University Conservative Association and the Oxford Union the first day. Mm. So, but if you say to me, why? Why? Well, that's the obvious uh, question, isn't that, it? That is the obvious question. Uh, and um, I'm afraid there's no answer to it. Mm. I just did it. You just did it? Yes. And it was something, what, something just instinctive? Because a lot of people that, you know, look at successful politicians or indeed people that just get involved in the political process these days. It's a, in most communities, it's now quite a rare thing to do. I mean, is there a case you'd make for it that people are, are looking and or watching um, this episode? Is, would, would you advise it? You spoke about young people, but is there a point in, in time that you think, well, actually go in there and try and make a difference? Uh, I think that I have been privileged to make a difference in, in a number of ways. This is the show stealer, you know. If there's, if there's a way to get in on the act, Fritz will find it. I think I was able to make a difference in Liverpool, but I also made a difference to myself. I mean, it, 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 there were three phases really to the Liverpool. One was the shock of the riots. Um, and my um, uh, agreement with Margaret that I could take time off mm. to find out what this was all about. It, it wasn't just policing, although that was the headline. Uh, the, the second was the, the visitation itself, and that had the effect of uh, twofold. First of all, um, it was marvellous the first day or two. Well done, how good of you yeah. to come. At last yeah, someone's yeah. listening. But the third or fourth day, what are you going to what do about do? it? Yeah. <laughs> and there was no escape. You couldn't mm. just sort of wave your hand and say, I've had a nice yeah. time and goodbye. <laughs> so I spent three weeks preparing a list. And this was the second phase of things that I thought could be done if someone would lead it. Mm. Uh, and then the third phase, when I realized there was no one to lead it. Mm. And so it had to be me. And so for 18 months, I was a troubleshooter. Uh, with, with a team of public-private sector secondees and every Thursday I'd turn up, they'd tell me the problems, every Friday I'd try to solve them and off I'd go again. Uh, but that experience um, showed me uh, really a number of very important messages. First of all, we are deeply top-heavy in the way we run this country. Secondly, we are deeply functional in the way politics is divided into specialism, mm. housing, transport, education. And there's no one saying, what are we going to do about Liverpool or Manchester yeah. or Birmingham? But, but I suppose you could argue we could have been having that discussion in any of the decades that I've met you since. Apart from, it seems today, there seems to be a real appetite now to actually 
give control to cities and regions in perhaps ways that I wonder what you make of it. In well, terms of the I, 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 I first of all disagree with the words appetite. Mm. There's deep resistance mm. because what's in it for anybody? You see, the, the functional departments in London, well, do they want to see all their activities blurred in a blob of common funding? Do the ministers whose careers are clearly defined in a functional sense want to see somehow this merged away? Do local councillors or local MPs want to create elected mayors more powerful in their uh, locality than the, the councillors or the MPs? Does the Treasury want to lose the defined mm. precision of their grant mechanisms? But I suppose if you take it as a bit of a curate's egg, you might say, well, Andy Street or Andy Burnham, um, a number of the sort of met newer, newer metro mayors have, have made a mark in a way that... Um, is interesting, I guess, in well, terms of what it, I, what it shows I, I think it's, I think it's fundamental, mm. but then you've got to say to you, when, so when did that happen? Now, there are only two really big movements. The first was Tony Blair with the Mayor of London, mm. and then uh, under David Cameron, but particularly led by George Osborne and Greg Clark, the Metro Mayors. Mm. Uh, but that was now a long time ago. Yes. And since then, the present situation, there's been no serious uh, initiative uh, except lots of talk. And, uh, well, if you go back to the Redcliffe Maud report, which was actually fundamental in 1968, 1,300 authorities, we need 60. Mm. Well, we've still got 300. Mm. Two tier of authorities in many of the counties, far more local authorities than we need, and without the leadership capability of a directly elected mayor. And you keep coming back to this word leadership. And I think it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people, when they look at the world today, will often say, well, it's the lack of leadership that, that we're observing. And I, I read something quite interesting where you said, well, look, don't, don't look at the world with rose-tinted glasses that a previous generation was so much better than, than the current generation. But, but there is a, a sense of deficit right now that actually well actually how how do we actually make progress deliver growth for lives actually see the leadership that people I guess are crying out for want to see in terms of delivering something positive for the future I have a very simple saying show me the problem show me the person in charge and it's a very good test mm. um, now, I think one of the problems today is that it's quite difficult to define the big issue um, except for one, which is immigration. Mm. And with that, you have all the uh, unpleasantness of racialism and uh, tribalism and all of that. But uh, it's a very difficult issue. It stirs the passions. And it certainly is the uh, underlying reason why we have left the European Union, which is undoubtedly the biggest mistake we've made in half a century, probably in a century, um, uh, because the extreme right, which is on the march, let's have no illusions, mm. right across the world, you can see these uh, graphs of popular support, populist movements, you can listen to what Mr. Trump says in America, but it's, it's much wider than that. It's in France, it's Germany, and of course, here it was Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. Let's go back to um, the start, really, because I, 
I remember when I interviewed you for a report, you spent quite a lot of time telling me about your lemonade stand at oh, school. Yes. Yeah, that actually yeah, this yeah. was this kind of moment of suddenly finding something that you could do um, that gave you, a, I guess, a moment of awakening um, in terms of the entrepreneurial zeal. I, mean, I didn't realise at the time, but you're quite right. And that's why I said earlier in this interview that the entrepreneurial side of me is the one that really has driven. And it started, the, the well, I think even earlier than the lemonade, my father and mother bought a, a very nice house on the suburbs of Swansea. The garden wasn't in great state. And so I organised a couple of friends of mine, um, uh, and we organised ourselves into a thing called Mick Devan, which was a combination of the three names of the boys, and we charged my father five shillings an hour. Um, uh, uh, that was he a happy customer. Uh, well, uh, well, he, he paid up. Um, but I think then the lemonade, when I was no good at games, you know, and uh, so I discovered that these very hearty fellows, when they came off the uh, soccer pitch, were thirsty. And so I found the local post office had crates of different lemonades, and I was there with a glass and a bottle uh, selling the, the big bottles broken down into, into glasses. Mm. Um, I, I seem to remember we made £27 in a term, do, which was a stack of money. Do you remember how you felt about that? Because I, I always often think that, you know, in, in any kind of start-up environment, is that it's such an emotional thing to do, isn't it? In terms of actually, you, you know, you, you go out and do something, it's quite a creative thing. I don't know what the lemonade tasted like, whether it was any good or not, but no, it's sort of... Perfectly good lemonade. Perfectly good lemonade. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of, I suppose, what it enthused you to go on to do, I mean, there is something about the entrepreneurial spirit, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, I don't, I think I can't really identify those words. I just thought it was a way of making some money and doing things. something. Yeah, there's a lot of entrepreneurs yeah. exactly feel that. Uh, and the, the, the big thing, the thing that changed my life, really, in entrepreneurial terms, was um, I, I was articled to a firm called Pete Marwick, now KPMG yeah. in the city, and they were going to pay me seven pounds a week, which is about half of what graduates of my generation earned, thirteen pounds, something like that. But I had a thousand pounds, which my grandparents had saved for me over the years. And um, uh, so I thought, well, that's not too bad. I've got thousand pounds, three years articles, three hundred a year, six pounds a week plus my seven, about the same as everybody mm. else. But that suddenly struck me but you won't have a thousand pounds. Yes. And, yeah. and, and that, without doubt, is one of the most important thoughts. Yeah. Not, not judgments, so to speak, or opinions, but thoughts. Yes. You won't have a thousand pounds. You won't have a thousand pounds, but it's also about attitude, isn't it? Because I suppose it, it, it sort of is based on your view about risk and reward and actually how, and I wonder well, how that plays out, has played out yeah. for you, because of course, a lot of people will say, well, a lot of things that entrepreneurs do is that they're risk takers, you know, they do things that other people no, no, might not no. do. No, it was much more, I won't have a thousand pounds. You won't have a thousand pounds. So I found another friend who had a thousand pounds, and his father knew about the London property market, and he found us a boarding house, which we bought for 3,750, 2,000 cash, rest on mortgage, and we sold it a year later for 5,750, right. which we then transferred into a hotel, mm. and that was the ladder of the property so side. So you saw the way that actually you could turn money, uh, make more money. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, you talked about Haymarket. I mean, that, 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 you talked about that as legacy. That, that obviously does have a very personal 
aspect. No, but you see, Haymarket again, uh, <laughs> uh, totally unpredictable. Yeah. Uh, a phone call when I was in this hotel from a friend from Oxford. I've bought a business, I'd like your views. I went to talk to him, caught a cab, and he showed me a thing called uh, Oxford University What's What, which was a guide for two and six for freshmen coming up, clubs, pubs, restaurants, mm. cinemas. Uh, tucked into the back of it was a loose-leaf 16-page uh, leaflet called Directory of Opportunities for Graduates, every page of which was sold to a big company advocating their careers. And I said to uh, Clive, look, this is pure madness. These guys have just come up. They're all freshmen, and uh, they're not thinking about their careers at this stage. You should take this and give it away every last year undergraduate yeah. in the country. He said, that's a good idea. Why don't you join me? I was in publishing. Yeah. Again, Fed, will you get down? Come on, stop being a nuisance. Come on, get down, get down. Um, and, and so I was in publishing. And, um, and uh, uh, that, that, um, it became, that project was extremely profitable. Um, we did a property deal which left us to spare cash. We bought a, a magazine called Man About Town, which was the attempt by a trade magazine, Taylor and Cutter, to talk to a consumer market and bring customers to Savile Row. It was a terrible thing, mm. but we transformed it into a town a man about town. And that was never particularly successful, but it transformed along with Dawson Stevens, who had the Queen magazine at that time, it transformed the quality of the visual of Britain's publishing trade specialist industry. Come down. Yeah. Fred, you are interrupting and being a nuisance. You know, he is. I think we're going to do the outtakes on that, aren't they? So if you don't mind, Lord Hell's <laughs> No, stop it. Uh, he can say you're, you're yeah. welcome. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it, it it created our reputation, and mm. one thing led to another after that. So that's opportunity and opportunism, and you, you take you, you, yes. you, you took it. Um, in terms of the takeaway, I guess in terms of how business affected your own attitude, your own, um, I guess view of things presumably it was more than just opportunism was i mean on, did you also get a sense of actually any element well did the deal making make you feel more creative did it make you feel more strategic i mean what what was the sort of a i was thinking about what are the takeaways oh well all... uh, well the the, the, the deal making yeah. was a very part, important part of the drive and excitement and um when we one of the things that came from town magazine is that our printers liked the look of us and mm. said these have got talented boys and um, uh, they took a share and on the basis of which they would produce the cash we would buy more so you were persuasive presumably yes yeah, yeah yes <laughs> undoubtedly yes uh, and uh, th th they did enable me therefore to do a mailing once a year to all the publishing houses, however big, saying, hello, I have a great admirer of you and I'm sure we can work yeah. together. The object of the exercise was to buy something. And I always bought something. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the, one of the acquisitions was the medical business. And today, I mean, that is half of Haymarket. Mm. Um, but the, the, the one I treasure, the memory I treasure, was the, uh, there was a magazine called Accountancy. And uh, he got the letter. He said, well, I don't think there's much in it for us, but if you'd like to come and see me. 
uh, that's well, fine. And so I went, and he mm. kept me waiting for a quarter of an hour, and I sat in his waiting room, picked up accountancy, and I, as I did, I flicked at it, and I got to sort of page 10, and then page 20, and page 30, page 40, page 50, and they were all recruitment advertising. So when he called me in eventually, I said, well, before we talk about anything, I would like to congratulate you on the incredible salesmanship to sell all this recruitment advertising. To which he said, we don't sell it. It comes through the post. Hmm. I couldn't get out of the office fast yeah. enough. <laughs> and we launched Accountancy Age within weeks. Yeah. And it made money from day one. And look at it now. I mean, I mean some of these titles you bought have gone on to become the absolutely defining titles of their Well, sectors. wait a minute. Um, uh, th that was true. Um, but, of course, the internet has changed all that. That's right. Recruitment advertising has all gone online. Well, so then I suppose another thing that an entrepreneur does is that they are fleet of foot. They spot the change. They get ahead of the change. Yes. How hard has that been to do as time has gone by? And actually, did, did politics distract that in any way? Well, well, no. I mean, you see, I went into government in 1970. Virtually in 1970, mm. for four years, came out again for five years, and then back again, um, uh, effectively full-time politics. So from these were good sabbaticals. Uh, well, I yeah. had I had two, two, three marvelous colleagues, yeah. and uh, they ran the shop. Mm. Um, so, so uh, I, the rules were quite clear. You know, my shares were in trust, and I, I didn't play any managerial role at mm. all in the company for a long period of time. But that is, in, in a sense, irrelevant in the context we're talking about because the internet wasn't there in yeah. those days. But now Haymarket is sort of uh, a fraction of print as it was. It's now very a digital business. It's now a digital business mm. uh, and a people's business. Mm. The managerial ethos today is much more inclusive of the interests of the employees. Uh, and that's a thoroughly good thing. Uh, there are, I mean, in Haymarket, there are a large number of occasions on which our staff are consulted and talked about and, and explained to, um, and that's very important. Mm. So, our time is is coming to an end together. But um, I was I was very taken by um, Max Hastings' diary review of your 90th birthday, and he said that it was like <laughs> listening to someone who's getting ready to sort of get back in, well, not even getting ready to get back into the fight, but actually he had no intention of sort of like putting his feet up and enjoying time with your gorgeous dogs. I mean, but actually this sort of urge to sort of go on, be relevant, make a difference, be part of it all. A lot of people would say, well, at 90, isn't it time to spend more time in the garden? That is obviously not your <laughs> conclusion. Well, it <laughs> is. I spend a lot of time in the garden. The important point is... Um, uh, I, I never ask to do anything. Yeah. It all comes from outside. And I broadly only do two things. One is Europe, which I happen to believe mm. is a trans issue, trans transcending issue uh, politically of our time. And uh, the other one is regeneration, mm. where I well, immodestly believe I have an experience which very few people have. Yeah. And I know what needs to be done. I've done most of it. And I know it would transform this country if it was done with passion and commitment and enthusiasm today. And you're a great believer in sleep, I understand. I mean, I was reading something about 
John Major's early morning telephone calls to <laughs> you over the newspapers. Um, I'm afraid well. that's right. John, John would bring me, when I was his deputy, with some particular concern, asking if I'd seen the news. And I, of course, never had. I was fast asleep. But I'd sleep, I mean, phenomenally 10 hours a night. Yeah. And, and I've always slept eight hours a night. Um, I, 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 as I hit the pillow, I'm asleep. Well, you're a very lucky man if you have that. I mean, just a sort of final word on nature. I mean, we're in this idyllic sort of location. Um, and in many ways, you've put your heart and soul into this place. And, and you can see it in terms of the, the, the beauty of it, the nature of it. Um, let's go back to that um, that issue about, about the legacy of, of the trees. And I, I really want to sort of get a sense of how it makes you feel. How it makes... Back to this idea, but I'm, I, I, I sense that it moves you at quite an elemental level, what you've achieved. Yes, no, I, I think that um, is true. But it's wonderfully satisfying, the numbers of people who now come and the comments that they make and the enjoyment they get. Mm. I mean, we, 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 the, the village, uh, they have access to the Arboretum, and it's terrifically appreciated. So what people see... And presumably what people will see in the years to come. This will last, and that's the difference between the political memories. This will be around. Lord Hesselstein, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Happy.